Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We've united the clans. It's time for another conclave. I'm Willie Grills. Joining me, as always, Selwyn Heidi. And joining us, the full crew, David Appled, Adam Kuntz, and the fabled Aaron Upoff. Gentlemen, <laughs> how are you? Very well. I'm excited to be on here with what's essentially a podcast, Cryptid, a.k.a. Aaron Upoff. That's right. Um I'm waiting on the Freedom of Information Act to get his folder to determine you know, <laughs> what Aaron actually is and where he actually came from. But we do have him here for this one glowing hour. Aaron, good to have you. Glad to be here. Is this going to replace gratuitous weather posting? We have not got to weather posting yet, so we'll get there. Might as well. How's the smog in New Jersey? It's good. You can see the planes and uh, their little loop when they go into Newark Airport today. So that means it's a nice day. Lovely. Lovely. David, how is the weather in uh, western Kentucky? Uh, the early rains are upon us. It's been pretty pretty gloomy, although warm. It's been about 50 the last couple of days. And um, yeah, everything's muddy and wet. Nice. Uh, Adam, Fort Wayne? Uh, it was actually sunny today, to my shock. Was that a good two hours for you? Uh, it was a solid four, uh, actually, and beautiful sunset. So, uh, you know, we're grateful for any day that is not completely covered in gray clouds. So, Fort Wayne actually sits somewhere in the United Kingdom. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, Fort Wayne is actually between, like, Newcastle and Edinburgh. Uh, a little more fact. deforested part of the kingdom. Right, exactly, exactly. Very flat. <laughs> but if you're considering coming here... You know, we have uh, higher tuition rates for Americans, so <laughs> that's how we make our money. Reduced rates for UK students, so. <laughs> and others. <laughs> uh, Zelda, <laughs> hold that up your way. I was kind of enjoying the cryptid posting that was going on there. I think we'll that get, should be we'll a new thing. We'll get to Sasquatch so. later. Well, he's, <laughs> what he actually is, is like a northern variant of the Jersey Devil, so. <laughs> Just because the man has hooves and wings. Well, Zelwyn, when you when you bring up Sasquatch, Zelwyn gets a little nervous. It, it feels close to home for some reason. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. You know, all this all this cryptid posting. It sounds like you know just back to what I'm usually doing. So, <laughs> Zelwyn, Zelwyn is a Wendigo, though. Zelwyn is a Wendigo. He's not he's not far enough west to be um, he, an ape man. Okay, he's not derivative of. Of, no, uh, of no, no. Well, I guess, I guess we'll trees. just go ahead and get into the first question, which is, what is the word fitly position on the Mothman? <laughs> As in all things, we, are, we, we question it. We're willing to believe it, but, you know, skeptical. Non-fundamental. The existence of the Mothman is adiaphora or not? Okay, but imagine believing that dinosaurs were real, but not the Mothman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it it is Adiaphra, but since we are in a state of of confession, we must believe it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dinosaurs fake, Mothman real. <laughs> Canada up for grabs. We don't know. Canada Canada is an astral projection of the entire Reddit community. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This is going to be a wild one tonight. I love it. Right. And join us next week when David Politis joins us for some missing 411 post. We've been waiting a long time. We have many emails out to Mr. Politis. Mostly to try to find out where Aaron was, but we found him. (laughs) David Politis, please return our phone calls and emails. Did you get the fruit basket I sent? (laughs) 
but to finish to finish my weather posting though, today was nice and cold. Actually, it was below zero. So, you know, this is the frozen tundra. But what nice. do you do? Very nice. Anyway, should we delve into some questions, Willie? Well, the Art Bell uh, edition of Word Fitly Spoken is fun, but we do have to get to some listener questions. And the first one is a question about uh, another synod, and that is, what is Eldona? What is the Evangelical Lutheran Diocese of North America? Any of you uh, gentlemen want to tackle that one? I can give at least some preliminary details. They're a break off of the Missouri Synod from, uh, I want to say maybe 15 years ago or so. And it's, uh, I'd say maybe, I think less than 30 congregations spread throughout the country. They use terms like bishop and and so forth. I think they have a, a bishop for life who's based out of Texas somewhere, James Heiser. One of you other guys can fill in more facts on him. But uh, yeah, that's really all I can think of at the moment. Heiser is actually the man over Repristination Press. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. And uh, they produce a lot of stuff about from translations from the age of Lutheran Orthodoxy. He's done a lot of those himself. There's also, he's got some writings of his own that Repristination puts out. So they they seem pretty prolific. Right. I think um, arguably the thing that Eldona is most known for is a denial of what is known as universal objective justification. And so that uh, that's kind of the the basic rundown of Eldona. It becomes a little bit difficult sometimes with a lot of the Lutheran groups, especially the smaller ones, to keep them or to kind of keep them all straight and their various um, fellowship agreements with other churches. There was another smaller synod that was uh, the Association of Confessional Lutheran Congregations, founded by some some pastors who left their denomination. I believe it was the objective justification issue that led to their termination of fellowship with Eldona. Right. Uh, so it all gets kind of... it's. Um, there's a lot of inside baseball, and we're outsiders looking in at a lot of this, so it does become a little bit... I don't know. For for me, it's hard to keep track with all of the groups. Yeah, I, I mean, I th- I think they originate in in protest about the the doctrine of the ministry in the Missouri Synod, and and at least how that's handled. Maybe also how it's confessed. But since I haven't read, they have produced writings on the office of the ministry, and especially why they have an Episcopal conception of the office of the ministry. But I don't know if they believe that that is necessary to the office of the ministry, if episcopacy is necessary or not. So that that's how they started. I mean, the, the issues with objective justification and now also election in 282 fide, that has come later in my understanding. Yeah, that's the 282 fide uh, issue seems to be just fairly recent from them. At right. least it wasn't something right. I was aware that they held to until there's their Ask the Pastor YouTube channel. Um, seems to be where that's really the first inkling that I had that they held to that. Right. Um, so, but uh, you know, eldona.org is their official site. I and mean, it looks like there's a lot of, you know, papers there or something you can take a look at. It might give you a, a fuller um, understanding of where they're, they're coming from. So that, that is Eldona. 
All right. Uh, moving on then, our next question is about theological zeal in general, in debate, uh, church-wide, and also within the local parish. What do we make of theological zeal? Is it a good thing? Is it something that that the Christian should have, something that the pastor should have? I suppose it depends on what you mean by zeal. I mean, are we talking about, you know, having a desire to get things right, having a desire to put good things in place, or are we talking about being disputatious, you know, just causing trouble or wanting to be right more than anything? So I guess we, right. have, to de- we have to decide, first of all, what do we mean by zeal? Yeah, um, right. And putting the best construction on it, you know, we're thinking of, of it in a positive way. Should someone be zealous for the truth? What does that look like? Should someone be zealous in something like evangelism and zealous for right doctrine? I think we can all agree in the general sense, yes. Mm-hmm. Then, But then it becomes, as you say, the question of the heart and the question of motives. There are a lot of armchair theologians out there. There are a lot of, of those who are not approaching theology with a spirit of humility with regard to the scriptures, with regard to its historical interpretation. So I think there certainly can be a lot of misplaced zeal, as you say, just a desire to be right or some kind of one-upsmanship that is not becoming of the Christian. But certainly there needs to be some zeal there. There needs to be some desire to see the truth preached, to see the truth spread, to see people come to a greater knowledge of of God's revelation. David, you're being quiet over there. Well, I think if, yeah, if you're talking about internet zeal, I think usually that's going to be a a negative, right? Because that's not (laughs) actually producing any, any fruit, right? If if you're debating things online with, with great uh, fervor and with great art, you know, very convincing arguments, you're, you're really not, I don't know, you're, you're probably not edifying anyone, which is, I think that's usually where we would want to go. Like, the test of the test of whether my zeal is actually productive or harmful is going to be what's it edifying, right? Is it building up my local congregation? And I think that that's just the way that I would, would kind of look at these things. I think by and large, our congregations don't have a lot of zeal for, for too much stuff. And so I would say, yeah, we need, we need zeal, but it needs to be placed in the right context. I'm not all that interested in internet zeal, but I I would like to see zeal within my own congregation. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Localism, very important. Uh, You know, face-to-face work actually being being done. The internet has really made this problem uh, rather pronounced. Somewhere between Melanchthon, Augsburg 14, and all of the internet theological gurus out there, we we do have a bit of a disconnect because there are a lot of men who presume the right to teach publicly uh, simply because it's really easy to register a domain name. That can be dangerous, I mean, not only for an individual, but but for those who are are listening. Anyone can become influential because of, of the rather neutral platform that is the internet more or less right now. And, and so that, that becomes dangerous. You know, why, you know, why are we, why am I doing this? Why am I writing these articles? Why am I 
asking provocative questions. Why am I developing the clickbait headlines? Is this true zeal for the truth? True zeal for the gospel? Is it something else? And it could be both. I mean, depending on you know who you're listening to and, and what's happening. But it's just particularly dangerous in the internet age and in this uh, lust for celebrity and recognition that that man tends to to have. And and so as David has said, I think the key is zeal at the local level, zeal for people that you're looking at face to face, the people whose hands you shake every Sunday, the people that you break bread with every Lord's Day. Very important. Zoan, how do you feel about well, I mean, it, I think it's important to say that, to keep it at the local level especially. Not that you can't have zeal at other levels as well, but when you have it at a more local level, the temptations of celebrity are going to be far less pronounced. You know, because if I'm trying to make myself a like a known figure within the synod, for example, just so that I'm known, you know, there is a re- very real danger which comes along with that. But if I am zealous for teaching the truth, especially to those, I mean, for a pastor who's teaching the truth to those that he has been set over, you know, that is not, it's not the same thing. It's usually not the same kind of drive because, well, you know, at most people aren't going to know you outside of your parish. And that's an okay thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with a broader platform. I mean, obviously, if you like what you hear, visit us at www.wordfitlyspoken.org. Yeah, it's just a question of, you know, kind of, exactly, exactly. So, you know, perpetually keeping ourselves in check and having good people around you to keep you, to keep you accountable, not necessarily endorsing spiritual directors here, but hey, shoe fits. Uh, so well, I think ahead. of zeal, like I think of charity where it needs to begin at home first and foremost, you know, and don't be the like the people that will leave their family for several weeks to go build a, a house in Honduras or something. And, you know, their children are on the path to becoming pagans. So like having zeal on the internet while as a pastor, there's teaching opportunities that are not being taken up in your own congregation. That seems to be missing the mark. I'm reminded of that cartoon where it's like, like the gal's like, honey, come to bed. And he's like, I'll come to bed in a little bit. But first somebody on the internet is wrong. Uh, you know, well, maybe to put a, a different, just put a little bit different spin on all of this too. You know, there is a time and place for engaging on the internet. I do think that there is. I think the internet is a frontier that we are, we haven't really taken advantage of as much as we should have. And I think many um, congregations could do much more in terms of reaching especially like, you know, the younger generations who are t- tend to be living on the internet, more or less. I mean, you know, sure. all day yeah. long kind of a thing. But there's a great difference between being zealous for, the you know, for reaching people through the internet and just going into some Facebook group and, you know, trying to win a debate. Yeah, absolutely. And, th- and that's really what we're driving at here. Just this internet only desire to be right, desire to be to be seen. That, that, that's where zeal turns to, to sin rather quickly. Um, it's like any good thing. Man is going to corrupt it one way or the other. I mean, thankfully, the internet is largely used for wholesome purposes nowadays. And uh, so we got that going for us. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, that's, okay. I, 
Phineas was zealous for the tabernacle, right? And the the desecration of the tabernacle, like this, this could be applied here, right? The desecration of the holy space was what irked him so much that he, you know, took his spear and went to work. But he did that at the local level. I mean, that was the local <laughs> spot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah we always have to put a disclaimer on these episodes um so be like phineas in minecraft there you go at the local level at the local level (laughs) on your local minecraft server (laughs) well gentlemen any (laughs) we got a few minutes left let's uh let's discuss zeal then a little more what would zeal look like at the local level for a pastor and for a layman? What would be some some examples? I think for either vocation, it first has to be applied to the mortification of your own sin. And it is, I think, a very easy thing to do when you have zeal, especially regarding some organization, whether it's your congregation or, or any other level. It is extremely easy to mask the battle against your own sin with battles against others' sins or what you believe are their sins. So I think one of the difficult things about zeal is that it is extremely helpful for the energy necessary to carry out the work of the Lord, but it is easily misused in failing to battle one's own demons. And generally, this can be seen in the utter lack of humility that people have in how they express themselves or how they diagnose the faults of others, whether theological or personal or emotional. Zeal is good and it can be helpful, but it can also be extremely destructive because in being zealous in a misplaced way and not handling one's own problems, you can destroy both the other person by what you say or how you treat him. And also fail to catch all the things that are that are wrong with yourself. And, and you know, Adam, I, you bring up an excellent point. And this isn't just a case of tone policing or anything like that. We're not saying everybody has to be like Fred Rogers or something. Right, right, right. But yeah. a lot of guys, you know, it's kind of like the Luther insult generator. A lot of guys have picked up on some of the crass language of Luther and maybe some of his sh- instances where, let's say, he was a, maybe less than patient and they wanted to emulate that. Or something like that and say, well, right. he did it. Yeah. You know, he said these right. things. So now now I'm being the, the true Lutheran by emulating that and failing to read his rather tender letters that he has, you know, <laughs> being patient and, and wise in pastoral counsel. They want to mimic kind of the edgy things that we see. And you know, that's the great temptation. It, it's, it's always, it seems at least nowadays, we, we say a lot of times, well, it's easier to be nice and it's easier to roll over. But the internet has turned it into where it's actually, in many cases, easier to be mean, and right, and yeah, and exactly. and so and 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 it's even applauded to be kind of mean and cruel and and short, and, and that's not that's not good either. Um, so you don't have to be Fred Rogers, but you don't have to be Andrew Dice Clay either, or Sam <laughs> Kennison, if you will, whoever you want to put in there, if you will. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Guys, any final words on on this topic before we head to break? Okay, Boomer. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. And with that, we'll be right back. This podcast brought to you by Bernie 2020. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The conclave has convened and we're handling user questions. So, gentlemen, if zeal at the local level is rather important, let's talk a little bit about engagement at the local level. And one of our listeners wants to know about outreach versus inreach. Uh, what, what do these two terms mean? Usually in the way that they're used in, is that outreach is describing reaching mem- uh, people who are not a part of the congregation, what we might t- typically call missions in the, the most basic sense, whereas inreach is usually used to describe reaching delinquents, the, the people who you know belong to the congregation in some way or are connected very closely in some way, but for whatever reason are not an active part, an active part of the life of the church. And so you know, is this something that we should set, you know, you know, how do we, ha- how do we handle that balance of reaching to new people as opposed to people who have fallen away? You know, I think that's really what the question is dealing with, wouldn't you say? Certainly. Well, let's talk outreach first, then in reach. Why is outreach important? <laughs> I mean, uh, well, let's see, it's in the Bible, but... Right. So the Great well, Commission think... is kind of a mandate towards yeah, outreach. I know, it, I know. It is. I th- the difficulty I have with the terms is that they generally are terms in search of activities. And sure. so when, when people use them, they want a certain amount of activity. There's also sometimes in, I mean, in reach is not really a word you would recognize hardly outside the church. And I think the reason for that is that it's a church word coined to balance outreach as if there is some kind of tension between evangelizing unbelievers and, on the other hand, taking care of current members of the congregation. And I think, so it it doesn't have to be a problem, but I think it easily becomes one because it's it's a way often to generate inside the church activity that does not contribute to evangelism and and could be selfishness on the part of the current members who basically want more stuff focused on the current membership. Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean I, I, I think that I think that 
what you what you often have in terms of activities is that you have certain people who gravitate to different kinds of activities within the congregation. And that might be natural just on the basis of, I don't know, personality, like somebody that wants to help, you know, fix up the church building is maybe not going to be, you know, conducting street evangelism. But I think that the issue is that when the people don't think of the body as a as a cohesive thing that subsists by virtue of the gospel, then they don't come to see the gospel as and and its spread as necessary to the congregation, as if the body that's already there, the current membership, could continue existing without the gospel spreading. Right. So then outreach just becomes one activity among others. You know, it's like you have you have the knitting circle, and then you have you also have some people who do evangelism. Hmm. Right. So what you're talking about then is perhaps a more, for lack of a better term, organic approach to this, whereby, I mean, I think that's part of the, I think you've hit the nail on the head in some ways. I think outreach as a term is almost artificial. Like we just have to have a committee for this or a group for this to do this certain task. There is a kind of outreach though, that happens rather, you know, more organically between people actually bearing witness in their lives in various vocations. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. In reach too, it becomes rather formalized, you know, as you say, if you, if you just want to reduce it down to just a program that we have to do. And I think, I think the term evangelism is in that way better than the term outreach also because outreach gets extended to things where the gospel is never shared in order for church members to come into some kind of contact with non-church members. Whereas the basic issue there is that on a fundamental level, a program is not going to rectify the fact that the church members are not sure or are not interested in perhaps both of those things, actually communicating the gospel to people who don't already know the gospel. And that if that communication were possible, things that go under the name activity-wise of outreach and in-reach would be happening because as far as in-reach goes, church members visiting each other, church members teaching their children the faith is also this effectively finally the same activities of sharing the gospel and being a caring human being that also go under the name <laughs> of outreach. You know what sure. I mean? There's not there aren't really distinct church activities that's why I think the separation is so artificial and and potentially harmful. Sure. I mean it's it's kind of like where you know, you can't just be friends getting together and doing an activity in the church. It's got to be like the dinner ministry or the golf ministry or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like just, yeah, just there is be inflation of and, ministries. Right. Yeah, just it's like just be human. <laughs> like just you know, be be a, be a real person around real people. I, <laughs> the the incarnation is actually important. And when we reduce people to just statistics or numbers or or counters on something, then then we've lost it a little bit. We're talking about flesh and blood human beings for whom our Lord died, people that you'll look in the eye, right? People who what you say to them and the witness you bear to them may well bear fruit in eternity that you can't yet see. Um, and I think maybe perhaps on the other side of that, there's um, some judgment that could be heaped upon us. Um, for being derelict in that in some way. But it's it's a case of just, you know, and it kind of goes back to our internet discussion of we're kind of becoming dehumanized. 
people, I mean, even, even outreach programs tend to treat would be visitors or inquirers or whatever non-safe term I'm allowed to use. They reduce them to a product and they reduce the gospel to a product. So they, they, or excuse me, they reduce people to just potential customers almost. Right. And they reduce the gospel to, to a product. And, and that's, that's no good either. And, and people can tell when you are, when you are programmatically trying to get them, you know, there is a certain discomfort that you can tell people have in church, inside church buildings when they don't usually go there and they're there for like an Easter egg hunt or something there, you know, they'll, they'll be polite, but they kind of want to get out of there because they feel like you're about to sell them. It's like the discomfort you have when you feel like the guy's going to swoop down on you and try to sell you a more expensive fridge yeah. than the one that sure. you to buy, you know? <laughs> I'm just looking. I'm just looking. <laughs> right, right. Like, like I don't need help making the sales, you know, decision. And, and I think oftentimes the church projects desperation or, or a sort of programmatic approach. And it, these aren't really necessarily bad activities that the church engages in under the name of outreach or in reach. But the thing that is organic to the church in the way that, you know, blood is organic to a family in a home, the thing that's organic to the church is the gospel. So if we actually know how that is shared and communicated what that is, then a lot of these things do take care of themselves with a with a minimum of planning. I think that planning often replaces the gospel because we're, we're just not sure how to talk about Jesus. Right. And with regard to the inreach question, I think inreach becomes the more difficult one because people are willing to at least tip the hat to outreach or evangelism programs or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Inreach becomes more tricky. It's a much messier situation often. It's also much easier to neglect in a way, because you're, people are often dealing with their own family members and friends and and they're straying from the faith, which is in some ways more difficult to talk about than it is with a stranger, yep. um, simply because totally. of that proximity. But again, inReach has to be organic and sincere as well. I mean, we're talking about being with actual human beings, so it is going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be at bad breath distances, so to speak, and that's... <laughs> That's the nature of the Christian in the world who who lives differently from the rest of the world. And this is what we are here to do, is to serve Christ and to bear witness to him. Although I think now that all the cool kids are telling me I'm not supposed to say bear witness or something like that, but I don't <laughs> agree with that nonsense. So anyway, any, any uh, other words, guys, on outreach versus inreach? No, I, I, I think, I think what's been said is, is quite on point. And, you know, if it it really does create a kind of artificial feel to all of it. So I, I do think the way to avoid having, you know, this debate or, you know, which focus should be more important is just to say, like, like Adam said, you know, live, live the gospel, share it as, as we would. And then these things will just kind of resolve themselves. Well, all right. Well, the next question, guys, is pretty interesting, I think. The question is, will we ever see any LCMS documents elevated to the level of confessional status, or should we see certain documents elevated to the level of confessional status? Paging Abraham Kalov, but anyway. (laughs) 
I mean, it, I mean, it's tricky because we do have a couple things adopted synod wide, but it, you know, is is that the same as as putting it on the? I subscribe Quia to the Creator's Tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> you come here for the hot takes, folks, and 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 this is where you get them, and we, and we give them. It's like it's Shrove Tuesday in here. <laughs> what's the what's the one the ctcr doc about planting a garden that's the one that's is the that, one that is the creator's tapestry okay mm-hmm. i was trying to th- i thought there was two stupid ones but oh go on <laughs> should put none too fine a point on it but yes <laughs> you're destroying oh. uh Zellin and willie's future gardening episode Aaron. <laughs> yeah i'm all about that i'm just yeah about our CTCR gardening episode will, will actually be binding on the audience's conscience. Yes. Yeah, so. and if you if they're going to be talking about EMP attacks, so that's okay. A little good. Yeah. good. Yeah. I'm just saying, keep keep some extra water around the house, folks. You never know. <laughs> get get one of those things you can fill your tub up with. But anyway, <laughs> Zoe, tell tell us more about your friend Abraham Kalov. I the reason I made that joke is because this actually this very question came up in the days of Abraham Kalov because he was basically trying to stick it to a Calixtus over the question of, I forget what the exact question was, but basically he, he wanted to elevate his writing against Calixtus to a binding confessional status. <laughs> a weird flex, but, you know, somebody's going to do it. <laughs> and, and I think no one actually took him very seriously, but... That is such a great troll, though. <laughs> so good. But it, it really, it it really does beg the question, though. You know, could we ever, in theory, elevate something else to confessional status? Well, we we've actually practically discussed this. Church and ministry in 1851, for example, is adopted by the synod four years after its publication. Right. As our as our statement on the question. And in the 20th century, we had something, we had a debate about this in the 50s and early 60s about the status of a brief statement. Yep. But those things are not in the ordination, right? Correct? Correct. ACPH is printing new stuff every day. So you never know. So the, uh, so the, the, the distinction sort of from a canon law perspective is that as a member of synod, you this is also your position a brief statement church and ministry statement on scriptural and confessional yeah. principles right that is not your position necessarily as a minister of the evangelical lutheran church who subscribes to the book of concord so the distinction here is between being a lutheran pastor and being a missouri synod lutheran pastor if you want to look at it that way but as far as like, does that mean that a brief statement is therefore, I mean, everyone on this call is a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Do we therefore subscribe to a brief statement? I'm not aware of anyone treating that document equally with the documents of the Book of Concord. So practically speaking, no, they're not the same thing. Adam's acting like he hasn't been on Lutheran uh, online forums of a certain age. <laughs> that is that is yeah that is that is maybe we could find people on the internet who have done such things 
Well, and then, but then it kind of brings up the more interesting question: Is do we need a modern formula of Concord, for example? To do you speak mean a twenty-first century formula of Concord? I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Blow the dog whistle, the dogs come. Here we go. Adam picked up on what I was saying. Right. I I guess I'm the dog. <laughs> I I think that I I think that the question of like do we or could we is obviously an open question. Because obviously the church could have such severe theological controversies that would necessitate a binding statement on her ministers so she could be assured that they were orthodox in the future on a question that we currently do not find to be widely controversial. Yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. problem is, given the absolute state of world Lutheranism, it would be nearly impossible to do that on any meaningful level. Because if the Missouri Senate adopted something like that, a huge chunk of world Lutheranism would ignore it. If Lutheran World Federation people adopted something, then the more conservative side of world Lutheranism would reject it. And so you, you would never see a broad adoption, you know, barring the Lord's intervention somehow, you would never see a broad adoption in the same way that, that you saw the Book of Concord adopted in its day because the state of Lutheranism is different. You could say something like, well, true Lutherans would agree with this, but I mean, what does that even mean? You know, I mean, as, as far as actual political reality, the, the 1580 book of Concord is able to be binding in a universal way on Lutheranism in a, in a way that it can't today. And the evidence is simply of all the Lutheran denominations in the world, how many hold to the entire book of Concord as authoritative, hmm. you know? And so how, how, you know, what is the process for, for doing this? And then how effective would it be if we could get something like that going? I think it's the interesting question. What's meant to unite just ends up, I would say, highlighting our divisions even more, which might not be a bad thing. Yeah. Truth yeah. be told. I mean, and and you would have a question similar to, what you had in America in the 19th century, where right. you have, you know, conservative groups, but from countries that have never used the formula of Concord. Correct. Yeah. You know, paging Zelwyn. And then, <laughs> you know, people that are that have not historically used the formula of Concord, but are interested in it, which would, you know, be like general counsel Lutherans. So I think you would just have to accept that you're trying to confess what scripture says, and then let the rest of the chips fall where they may, because when you're making a confession, it has to be a Catholic confession, small c Catholic, but its acceptance is much more uncertain than your conviction, you know? And, and again, I, I do think you could, uh, it is probably true that we are in a time where we need to speak more clearly on certain, even theological issues, but a lot of it has to do with reaffirming what we've always believed, which is increasingly more difficult yeah. And, you know, and then yeah. speaking truth to some of the kooky stuff we deal with just in our own time. Well, the yeah, I mean, you mentioned already the 21st century formula, but you, you hear you have these statements every once in a while that are usually about homosexuality or it's the other one it, it just about marriage and what is the church's stance on marriage. And mm -hmm. um, pastors will sign these things and they go around the Internet and then they disappear Right. You know, a month later yeah. or something. I, I can't even remember right. what the last one was called. But those things obviously 
fail that, like you're saying, Adam, that Catholic test of, yeah, it might be something that you support as a pastor. You might say, this is, you know, what I take on this situation, but I don't, I don't see how outside of like the state church kind of apparatus, I don't see how you can have kind of a binding confession that then everyone in the territory, you know, all of our churches are going to agree to this stuff. Yeah, I think it would be difficult even to do synod-wide. I mean, it's it's hard enough to get the Book of Concord in every congregation. To add the new, you know, would be, but it would be an even greater battle. And maybe it is one that's worth fighting. I'm not saying it isn't, but it would be uh, an uphill battle, certainly. <laughs> but that was a tremendous question, and I'm glad that it, that it was asked. I have a way that we could solve this issue real easily. It comes from another uh, Orthodox Lutheran father who actually made the argument that because the Book of Concord is based upon the Bible, quia, therefore the Book of Concord is also inspired. So, <laughs> Well, also the Book of Concord does mention the bondage of the will, so we, we subscribe to that, as well so, as... You know, what, are, what any other writings, the, the Galatians commentaries. I mean, these things have been tried before. <laughs> and others. <laughs> so there, we'd solve all of our issues. Just say you ha- you're, you're confessionally bound to believe that God himself gave us the Book of Concord. We've solved the problem, so. Well, there we go. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The gang's all here, and the conclave is together, and we're answering your questions. The next one's going to be a pretty fun one. If you could pick one book of the Apocrypha to recommend, what would it be? Assuming you haven't read it all already. (laughs) So, guys, who wants to jump in first? Well, I could... I'll just... Because I'm always interested in questions of history... The Maccabees books would be a good place to go, if only because they describe the period in between the Testaments. So you're dealing with you know, the, the problems that with the Jews were facing with the Greeks and also some of the, the struggles that they went through uh, in between Malachi and Matthew, which is always, I think, an interesting... I mean, it's, it's good to fill in your, your knowledge of history on these sorts of things, right? Oh, yeah, no, I totally agree. And first Maccabees is far and away the most valuable of those. Second Maccabees is largely, I mean, it's it's a condensation of 
a lost work by a historian named Jason of Cyrene. Third Maccabees, less valuable, and fourth Maccabees uh, is a wild ride, but <laughs> you know, not not terribly valuable at all. So anything that resembles a historical book, for that reason, I think Tobit is very interesting. But if you if you're just doing one book, I'd go with First Maccabees. All right, I'm gonna go out on a limb and go with Sirach, otherwise known as Ecclesiasticus, because it is wisdom literature. <clears throat> the structure's weird. There is none. It, uh, it is it's very a, it's an invertebrate, basically. You just <laughs> your Western mind, Willie. Your Western mind just can't. You can't. You can't handle it. Right. So no, but in all seriousness, that I would I like that one. Tobit, very interesting. If you don't want to go whole hog on a full book, there are things like extra chapters in, in, in Daniel, or extra verses, rather. And then the other extra chapters that you get maybe out of the Vulgate, uh, if, you want, if you want to go with that. So there, there is a lot of, there's a lot of good to glean from it and a lot of interesting things. Even if you want to just look at the, the apocryphal books as intellectual curiosities, I still think it's, it's profitable. Um, but there's really more to them than, than just that. So this also has us brush up against the old canon debate, which is a little bit trickier from the Lutheran perspective historically than it is from the Reformed. Because, the, for example, the Westminster Confession clearly outlines which books they accept and which they don't. But for the, for the, for the most part, Lutherans, for the majority of their history from the Reformation proper, have not considered the apocryphal books canonical. And I think that's a safe thing to say. I know we'll get some a little bit of a flame war going uh, in the comments over that, but that is that is true. Because if it wasn't true, the question which apocryphal book should we read wouldn't even be asked, you know. So it they are books that are significant though. I don't think that they need to be tossed aside and not read. You know, so I, I don't take the the super Protestant position on the Apocrypha, uh, which is kind of ahistorical to say anyway. I mean, these books are even in the Geneva Bible. So is what it is. So we've got Maccabees, Sirach, there's Wisdom of Solomon. Let's talk about Tobit for a minute. As what, one does. Yeah. What do you all think about Tobit and its content? The I'll just tell it a short story here. The first time I ever heard anyone read from the book of Tobit was at a Roman Catholic wedding. And my father-in-law, who was a, a super Lutheran, hyper Lutheran, is that a term we can use? He he. Had I, I think I, I think it's hyper Euro. Is the okay? Term. Yeah, <laughs> that, there you go. Thank you. I think that, I believe that been, one's copyrighted. He had been asked to read from the Book of Tobit for this wedding. I think it was his his nephew, his nephew's wedding, and so he was like, "Have you ever read the Book of Tobit? I'm supposed to read this at a wedding." And I, at the time I hadn't. And so I'm reading it with him and we're talking about why would you want to have this read at your wedding? <laughs> and at the, his, his conundrum was that he wasn't sure after he read, how was he, was he supposed to say the word of the Lord or what was he supposed to say? And, and to be honest, I can't remember what he finally concluded on that, but it's just an interesting, you know, Lutheran exposure to the book of Tobit. At a wedding. <laughs> All right. Just, so we learned just, a lot about Tobit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 
yeah, and it is interesting though. I mean, because it's not something that we're accustomed to hearing read, but you do have some fantastical elements within Tobit, right? The fish and whatnot. Something like Bell and the Dragon from Daniel. Do you, do you guys want to talk about dragons? <laughs> no, not the, the the reason I don't is because in my experience, people don't know the Bible hardly at all. Like the Bible, indubitable Bible, inspired word of God stuff. And so talking about reading the Apocrypha feels like, you know, we're talking about what we're going to have for dessert and, but you have like nothing in the house to make dinner. You know what I mean? Well, like, first of all, the, the, the regular Bible does have dragons, but go on. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, people. Yeah, but yeah, you, that's fine. And you can say that. <laughs> And it is true, but then we've got to take it. I mean, how far do you want to take it? Like, really, did this listener question come from you? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> did not. But, I mean, to be fair, though, yeah, but we could also say that about nearly anything. And we do talk about this a lot on the podcast, where it's a lot easier to get people to read theological books than it is to read the actual Bible. Yeah, right. And And yeah. so... And so that broad principle applies. That doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't. That's kind of what happens with the Apocrypha. Well, you shouldn't read that. But I'm going to ignore the Gospel of Matthew and read a commentary on it. Or I'm going to ignore that or and read this devotion about desserts or something. Then, you know, it can be... I mean, I just don't want people to get the, the wrong idea. Like, read, you can read the Iliad and the Bible and be okay. Um, and I hope you do. 77-part uh, series on the Iliad coming up on Word Fitness. Yeah, I mean, the thing right. that kind of saddens me about what you just said is that you somehow brought Tobit on the same level as the Iliad, which is just highly <laughs> offensive to Homer. I mean, like, That's right. like if somebody was like, okay, I read the Bible straight through, what do I do next? They'd be like, okay, read Homer. Like, I would not be like, well, you need to read Sirach now, you know? Um <laughs> You need to, basically you need to go plunder Egypt yeah. first before right, we go on. To right, exactly, else, so. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying everything in the Iliad happened. All right, we're moving on. <laughs> but I mean, we, we can paint ourselves into a corner when, when it comes to this. When it comes to what, what we should read and what we shouldn't, and we absolutely agree that we need to get into the uh, non-disputed text uh, more so. It it is a little bit strange. And I don't know what causes it where people just don't want to read. Like you could sit down and read any of the gospels in an afternoon if you wanted to. Yeah. But we'll pour over hours and hours of rather superfluous books. Again, not talking about the Apocrypha here. Superfluous books, chats, threads, you know, hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And um, and I I I, th- I mean I think the thing with the apocrypha is that it it sort of feels aesthetically historic, and so people that are into other historic like the historic liturgy or something, it's like oh okay well I should do this other historic thing. I mean but, I think one of the issues with this canonically is that the Lutheran position feels weird in modernity, but it's basically just the position of the medieval Western Church, which is we read these books the apocrypha but we don't really use them to prove anything. There is development within Roman Catholicism and the Reformed churches in the sense of having lists. Yeah, that all comes post-Reformation. Even Trent is Right, so the Lutheran position doesn't have to be awkward unless you let yourself feel awkward. No, it it is awkward in in the current year because 
everything is listed out as these are authoritative. We don't officially have that list, so it becomes awkward in discussion because of that. And so we don't even have the position functionally anymore that these books are, are helpful or profitable. Functionally, we don't. And and so when when people start to look into them, sometimes there's this idea that they're doing something wrong in doing so. There's also the other side that, that wants to just adopt all of them as if they are scripture. That's a problem, too, in some of our circles. At the very least, though, we can say that the Apocrypha helps us understand the intertestamental period to some degree and does inform us a little bit about what's going on in the New Testament. But yeah, you're right. Historically, it's not odd what we have, but what developed put, you know, puts us in kind of, we're kind of like the Amish, right? Technology for them stops in 1830 for some reason. And so while they weren't all that strange looking in their time, nowadays right. they yeah. stick out a little bit. And I right. think that's what we're, right. I think that's what we have. And so you're absolutely right. Um, and it is important to know that what, what we're doing isn't lazy, we're just not innovating. We're not doing. We're actually the ones who aren't doing something novel, because what is novel is to make the list and saying, "This is what you have, and that's all you can use." And and so, yeah, it was a product of the Reformation though that gets the list. Do do you think a list of the canonical scriptures is good or bad? <laughs> I mean I guess it, it it depends on what you want. I mean I don't I don't want the issue is that the reformed are defining something that was never defined before. To me that's a lesser error than what Trent does where not only are they defining something that was not defined before, you are also anathema if you say that for instance ecclesiasticus is not scripture, you know? Right. The the definition of the canon now becomes a confessional issue that it had not been before. And the because it's really a proxy for whose authority undergirds the Bible. Right. And the, the Lutheran difficulty or the Lutheran awkwardness, if you want to call it that, is that the the self-attestation of scripture is both the historic position and the Lutheran position, and we're just letting it sit there. And the lack of a list makes people uncomfortable because they want more certainty than scripture is giving them in and of itself. Sure. And in the East, the question gets a little bit murkier because uh, it's certainly not the same as, as the Council of Trent. It actually may swat a little closer to the Lutheran position if you look at you know Ru things that certain Russian theologians and others say. Yeah, it's always even though tricky. their canon is bigger, you know they their canon, they actually their have canon for instance, is bigger fourth Maccabees, yeah. you know, right? But they will sometimes make a distinction between certain books. It's a, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like it's strat it has it has one foot in each. So this this broader canon, but they'll sometimes speak of certain books in a different way. But it is interesting though how the universally agreed upon books still seem to have the greater weight. We'll put it that way, right? So, all right, so read Maccabees if you want. If you don't, that's fine. Read 4th Maccabees if you're really ambitious, I guess. All right, we'll get to dragons one day, I promise. Okay, so <laughs> the last question we're going to consider is another question about different synods. It's about the divide between the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the Wisconsin Synod. What divides us? 
Who are we really in fellowship with? What is true fellowship and unity from a biblical perspective? Now, why might we want to put this in the context of the Wisconsin Synod and the Missouri Synod? Missouri and Wisconsin used to be in fellowship with one another within the Synodical Conference, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And so the issue of fellowship there is a question of, I mean, you're dealing with with groups that were historically you know, in fellowship with one another, but now we are no longer. So what constitutes real fellowship? And is there a sense in which, and this is actually part of the question too, is there a sense in which, you know, the divisions within either of those bodies, you know, are the, are the conservatives, so to speak, within that body more in fellowship with the conservatives in the other body, you know, or are they, you know, I mean, it, it it's a mess is basically what it is. And how do we deal with that mess in, in the current year, I think is really the, what we're trying to drive at here, right? Yeah, and the reason it comes up is because of that shared history. I mean, I have the the pastor who was here, not immediately before me, but he still lives here. He grew up in the Wisconsin Synod and became a Missouri Synod pastor without, I don't think he ever had some official change of position about anything. And then he found out he wasn't in fellowship with the Wisconsin Synod at some point in time anymore. And it, I mean, no one asked him, but he wasn't anymore. So there is that, and it's still, it's still kind of living history, which is why it's, why this question comes up. Sure. I think it's also, it's, I think it's also important to say that when we think about these questions, if we think about each other, mainly in antagonism, what are the controverted issues, it will be extremely hard to overcome the divisions that lie between us in the future if we are invested in defining ourselves over against one another. I think an example of this is the concept of fellowship and the issue of not only what was the history on how did people pray with non-synodical conference Lutherans in the 19th century. You know, that's a valid historical question. It may be separate from a biblical question about, for instance, what does Romans 16 actually say about divisions in the church. And what's interesting about this is that the question of division and fellowship, these are questions that not only came between Missouri and Wisconsin regarding how does Missouri relate to various organizations. You know, we do these episodes with uh, Dr. Brown from Wisconsin Lutheran College about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. So you can go back and listen to those and hear about his, you know, the issues that Missouri had with the Boy Scouts or the military chaplaincy. But Wisconsin had its own break with the Church of the Lutheran Confession regarding this question of when division needs to occur or has already occurred and needs to be recognized by a break in fellowship. So it's kind of a question that has bedeviled conservative confessional Lutherans for a very long time. And if that's, I think, not recognized, then it's going to be hard to find common answers going going forward. No, that's, I think, I think that's very well put, Adam. And especially when we're dealing with, you know, how do we, how do we figure out who are we really in fellowship with? You know, is there a sense in which we are, we have more in common across the denominational lines these days? You know, this kind of, I mean, I don't, sometimes it's called selective fellowship. I mean, I don't know if we want to deal with that, especially this light in the podcast, but I mean, it, it really does come down to, you know, how do we 
approach the scriptures? I mean, this was uh, many of the questions that, like you say, bedeviled the, the synods. And how do we express that in ways that are not going to compromise that confession? Right. And I think one of the burdens that Missouri has in the future is that we have to be able to articulate what are we actually doing on the level of fellowship, because Wisconsin has a concept of unit, the unit principle of fellowship. All fellowship is kind of one thing and all activities either express fellowship or don't, right? Uh, That's the reason that joint prayer cannot occur between Missouri and Wisconsin currently, you know, like in an official capacity. But Missouri does not necessarily practice or teach some ideas of fellowship that I have seen attributed to it, although it may have in the past. That's part of the historical complexity is that Missouri has developed very in a variety of ways since the break in the Synodical Conference in the early 1960s. I mean, at the time, we were basically auditioning to be the next great mainline Protestant domination. So the way... <laughs> Closest we ever got to being wasps, you know? Right, exactly. So so the way that we were not practicing a biblical understanding of fellowship, however we define that, is very different than our continued upholding of closed communion to this day. You know, I think to the surprise of many Missouri Synod Lutherans, maybe back in 1962. So the issue of fellowship is, I don't think, has not been answered, certainly not in a way that was satisfactory enough to bring back into one fellowship the the different synods and their breakaways from the old synodical conference. Which is probably a long, uh, longer way of saying that it's we can't answer this in, in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the complexities of that, like Adam said, they're really laid out in the uh, Synodical Conference episodes. Do you guys think there's a path forward? Will what would it take to to get the Synodical Conference back together? So now you're now you're asking about you know a recurrent dream I have. <laughs> I, I I mean there there are I th- I think fellowship is maybe the one of the fellowship along with what is the doctrine of the ministry, and also how is that practiced. Those are probably the two biggest issues lying between Missouri and Wisconsin and the ELS, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, which if the listeners aren't familiar, that they're in communion with the Wisconsin Synod, but Wisconsin's heritage is German and the ELS's heritage is Norwegian. Those are probably the two biggest issues. They, however, they're, they're extremely big because they concern not only what do we think, but also a vast array of very practical questions like with whom do we pray and how do we issue calls to different kinds of church workers and and all kinds of stuff. And so it's very historically complex and we haven't been working together theologically for a very long time, most of the latter half of the 20th century. We now have annual talks with each other which is, I think, fantastic and a good step forward. But I think in the future, we will need each other in a way that we did not necessarily need each other in the 1980s just to survive. And so I think that that what is to come in our country will will force us to care about each other more than we have in the past. How we, and then my answer to the question of how we're going to bring back the Synodical Conference, two words, meme magic. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 
Well, gentlemen, that's going to wrap up the conclave. Thank you all for coming. Always good to get the the whole band together. Uh, Always a pleasure. Aaron, you're being quiet back there, but we're glad to have you. (laughs) I'm just enjoying it. David, always a pleasure. Yeah, and Adam, of course, uh, it was a good time. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with the whole crew. God love you, and God bless.